Welcome to episode 1957 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I'm joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I'm doing great because I don't know if you know this, but we are officially more than halfway through the offseason. Wow. Yeah, Tuesday was the milestone. So we have a, a listener and a member of our Facebook group, Kyle Lobner, who every day he does a, a countdown to opening day. And he does it with a little theme where he looks up the average of uh, baseball reference war and fan graphs war and baseball prospectus warp. And then he looks for who, let's say, if it's 71 days until opening day, which is the case Wednesday when we're recording, then the average of those three metrics tells us that the 71st best player of the 2022 season was Yandy Diaz. So it's a a fun little themed way of tracking our progress through the offseason. And Kyle noted on Tuesday that as of that day we were officially halfway to opening day and james smith on twitter he pinpointed it even more precisely he tweeted as of 6 11 a.m eastern tuesday mm. we are closer to the first pitch of the 2023 mlb season than we are to the last pitch of the 2022 world series so that's nice we've turned the corner that's something to look forward to. And that's, of course, if you define the end of the offseason as opening day, which technically it is. But if you're someone who looks at the start of spring training or even pitchers and catchers reporting as a significant milestone, then we're very close to that. Though I would argue that maybe the first month and a half of the offseason is actually more entertaining. There's just more baseball stuff to talk about that is actually interesting than the last month and a half or so of the offseason because even though there are people in uniform and stretching on the grass and playing games that don't count – I think ultimately you get a little jolt of excitement when that happens and when you see it for the first time and then it kind of fades into the background and you just want to get that over with so the real games can begin. Whereas there's a lot of intrigue, especially this past offseason in November, in December, as most of the major moves of the offseason start to shake out. Anyway, however you calculate that, we're, we're getting there. In this episode of Effectively Wild, Ben gives Meg a panic attack. (laughs) (laughs) Not a lot to do between now and opening day, Ben. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. For you, I guess it comes with some time pressure. There's no off season for Meg. (laughs) For us too, depending on what sort of team preview series we do this year, which we will have to figure out sometime soon. But we're thinking thoughts about it. That's for sure. For most people, that is uh, purely excellent news and, and mostly for us too. We look forward to baseball being back. So yeah. We have a guest today, and we have a little bit of banter. Before we get to that, we have uh, yet another, our, our daily episode submission for a way that baseball is weird and different. Mm-hmm. So Tom is the latest to write in, and Tom says, I've been thinking about what makes baseball unique and different. While many you have discussed have been interesting, I keep finding myself thinking that almost everything has an equivalent in cricket. However, I've been unable to think of anything in any sport that is an equivalent to the mound. Mm. I cannot think of a team sport where a single player is placed on an elevated surface above the other players who are all on the same plane. I realize in individual sports you have platforms, such as in diving, but nothing in a team sport comes to mind. So 
We've talked about the irregular dimensions, the very irregular dimensions as something that sets baseball apart as not unique but unusual. And then we've also talked about the multiple playing surfaces as another distinguishing characteristic. So having both grass and dirt and being able to go freely from one to the other or even have the same player standing straddling the two surfaces at the same time. But this is a, a new little wrinkle that I had not considered. It is not a level field. So you might have a slant, you might have a Tal's Hill sort of situation, but you also, on every field, you have a mount, you have an elevated surface, which no perfect compass come to my mind. There, There may be one, but that is unusual. Yeah, when when we got this email, I was like, well, surely I will think of one. And I haven't, just because the show, I should be less skeptical of our listeners. Because, yeah, it's like you do have them in like sports like diving, right? Mm Because you have the the heart of the concrete, which makes me very nervous uh, Mm -hmm. when I watch it. And then the, well, depending on how high up you are, the the seemingly experientially hard uh, water. But, Mm -hmm. yeah, it is a weird little bit of of business. So, I don't know. There's no pit. But right. there is a, a mound. There is a mound. <laughs> yeah, so there's a, there's a convex part of the field, if not a concave part that you can fall into and potentially hurt yourself. But yeah, if any perfect analogs to that come to your mind, listener out there, yeah. please let us know. But that's a pretty good one. Yeah, I, I hmm. there has to be something, right? I mean, if we want to get uh, pedantic about it, which we usually do, I guess there is uh, some variability in the surface of of probably most sports, right? If you were to to have highly accurate, sensitive laser measurements, right, then uh, there would be some slant or or some sure. little uh, bumps and and valleys. But like in, an intentional, in but, an intentional right. one. Yeah, which is right. you know specified. This has to be uh, no higher than the, this amount over the rest of the field, but it's sort of standardized and is part of the the game and. And a player derives an advantage from that. Yeah. That is unusual. Yeah. It's a weird, man. Baseball's so weird. <laughs> it is weird. Yeah. It's, it's weird. And look, it's possible that every other sport, if this were a volleyball podcast or a, a you know, badminton podcast or whatever, mm. that they could have equally long lists of ways sure. that their sport is unique and different. So I'm, right. I'm not saying that this is purely a, a baseball exceptionalism sort of thing. I mean, I think there are some parallels in other major American sports that are not in baseball. I mean, like hockey and and football and basketball and and even soccer. I mean, these are all, you know, you have sort of a mostly symmetrical field and you have, you know, one team trying to defend its side of that surface and the other team is defending its side. And then you march down the field and you try to put the ball in the end zone or the ball in the hoop or, you know, the puck in the, the goal or the soccer ball in the goal. Like there are some parallels there that I think baseball is is different in a substantive way from those things. So maybe just the fact that it has a different origin and an earlier origin and, and a non-American origin, maybe that makes baseball more different than other sports are different from other sports, if that sentence made any sense. But, <laughs> but again, I don't know if it's uh, uniquely unique 
Right. <laughs> but it is unusual in a lot of ways that, that we like. Like if we're big baseball fans, then I think there's almost like a, a jingoistic, like our sport is, is special because it's different from all the other sports sort of thing. Some of these are not necessarily pluses or minuses. Right. They're just yeah. things. Some of them are, though. I think yeah. some of them are kind of cool that baseball is different in that way. So, again, we will hopefully find a place to compile all of these many submissions, the many good ones that we've talked about. Maybe there can be a space carved out on the Effectively Wild Wiki just to keep track so that we don't have duplicates over time. But this is fun. So if you got them, keep them coming. So there have been a few transactions, but I don't know that any of them rises to the level of uh, gotta banter about this unless you have hot Trey Mancini or Adam Duvall or Tommy Pham takes. <laughs> We're kind of in in that part of the offseason yeah. now. So. I don't know that I do. You know, yeah. I'm, uh, I hope everyone found a, a new home that is to their liking, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm interested in the Adam Duvall full season center fielder experiment, which yeah. is apparently something that is happening. Man, I mean, you take Trevor Story away and then maybe Kike Hernandez is a shortstop and maybe yeah. Adam Duvall is a center fielder which he's been okay out there in in limited time, it seems like, in the past. But to have him become a full-time center fielder at this age, like he hadn't even played center fields before he was 30 or 31, I think. It's an odd trajectory anyway. We've talked about that just being a a mismatched roster in some ways, the the Red Sox. So uh, those players have found homes, and uh, these have all been players that we've talked about for one reason or another. Sometimes it's because someone slapped someone else over a fantasy football dispute. Sometimes not. Who can say? So that's uh, great for those guys and great for those teams, but we don't have a ton of material on them, and I think that's fine. However, we do have a guest, and our guest is Dan Moore, who wrote three really long and comprehensive and thorough and engaging pieces for The Ringer last year that sort of summed up the state of the sports business, I would say. So he wrote about just the value of sports franchises to cities and what it means when they leave those cities. Dan is a Bay Area resident and an A's fan, so obviously that is important to him. He also wrote about the 30th anniversary of Camden Yards and the many ways in which that changed ballpark construction. And he talked about the rise in valuation of sports franchises and just how great a business that has been to be in for the past few decades, but not always. It wasn't always the case that that was a guaranteed great rate of return, but it certainly has been the case recently. So there have been some developments lately with ballpark funding and team sales being explored. And so we will bring Dan on for an update on the A's stadium situation, but also just these larger trends in sports economics and why cities keep forking over money to sports owners who are richer than ever and profiting mightily. And that takes us, I think, to our last bit of banter here, because uh, there were a couple, I guess the Internet would probably dub these guys fail sons. Maybe that would be uh, <laughs> a, a popular bit of uh, lingo to what use is, to describe these executives. What is the difference? There have probably been entire podcasts devoted to this question. What is the difference between a fail son and a nepo baby, Ben? Yeah, or a large adult son. That's that's different well, that too. That one feels the most clear to me. Yeah, <laughs> right. I, I mean, if a nepo baby, I think 
doesn't can, necessarily fail, right? Right, right. Can They're be just, quite successful, can be right. quite competent. Which is a, sometimes right. part of the problem, right? Yes. A fail son, I think, canonically is, is sort of a, an incompetent or unsuccessful person who is uh, given the gift of inheriting right. great wealth of some sort. And I guess it's it's kind of tough to tell if you're a fail son or not, because again, like you're too big to fail at that point. So, uh, you know, people don't ask to be born extremely rich and it's uh, great to be born extremely rich, I'd imagine. But yeah. but also uh, people sort of uh, assume some things about you. And, and look, there are some people who are born extremely rich who are also very good at their jobs, even sure. if their jobs happen to be part of the family business, let's say. I don't know that we can uh, pass judgment either way on the two men we're about to discuss, but I can say that when they talk to the media, great things tend not to happen. So what we had this uh, past week or so, we had stories involving the Orioles and the Reds. So the Reds story involved Phil Castellini, the Reds president and son of the Reds owner, Bob Castellini. And Phil is probably best known for less than a year ago stepping in it when (laughs) just like on opening day again, I think it was right around then. Yeah. I think it was exactly opening day, in fact. Yeah, right. When the mood is uh, great and spirits are high and you're supposed to be drumming up interest in your team. We just survived the lockout, you know. Right, exactly. And, uh, you know, he was asked about the fact that the Reds had done a mini fire sale of sorts and and basically was like, well, like it or lump it. He was like, where are you going to go, Reds fans? (laughs) We're, We're the only major league game in town here. And then I think in a later interview he doubled down on that and said uh, the only thing that would make the team more profitable and competitive would be to pick it up and move it somewhere else so be careful what you wish for so just basically threatening the fan base and uh, just calling them ingrates essentially and so this uh, past weekend I guess it was he was uh, at a, a Reds supporters group so again Consider the audience here and the venue. This was a a Rosy Reds luncheon. And the Rosy Reds, I I think, are maybe the longest extant fan group surrounding a team. This was originally a women's group, although it hasn't been for quite some time exclusively women. But it's a a philanthropic and social organization that is uh, basically boosters of the Cincinnati Reds and was formed in 1964 because the then owner of the Reds was uh, playing the game that we're going to talk to Dan about and threatening to move the team to San Diego if he didn't get what he wanted. And so this Rosie Reds organization was started to try to prevent that from happening and drum up interest and, and local support for the Reds. So that's the group that he's talking to here. These are like committed Reds fans, right? People who who like the Reds. Granted, people who like a team can can often be among its most vocal critics, but I don't get the sense that that was the case here. And he came out with a few groaners, it seems like, that were widely shared on Twitter at this luncheon. And I will note that Twitter's not real life, and, and sometimes you do get situations where there's a real life event and everyone's like, oh, this is fine. And actually we're kind of enjoying it. And then you look at the tweets about that event and you might get the impression that it was a complete disaster and, and everyone was tearing their hair out. And this is a case where this is not public. This was a private event. So we cannot watch the whole thing and evaluate it ourselves. And friend of the show, C. Trent Rosecrans for The Athletic, he did a good piece where he talked to people who were there and also organizers of the event. And there were some differences of opinion 
about right. how what Castellini said was received in the room and how disastrous this actually was, right? But a lot of the comments that came out, and again, maybe we're missing some element of tongue-in-cheekness or intonation or something, but it's hard to read them as very positive, right? So right. one comment he made was uh, that the Reds are, are running the team like a nonprofit. And I guess that was uh, kind of a, a joke to some extent. He he said this team operates as a nonprofit. And I guess what he meant by that is that the Reds are not making money, he's asserting, right? But obviously not a nonprofit organization in in the technical sense, right? And then he also said uh, he, he bemoaned guaranteed contracts. And he said, is anyone here paid to not do their job? which is, of course, uh, coming from him pretty rich, literally, right? As uh, the owner's kid's son (laughs) who has a guaranteed job and and guaranteed wealth, right? And then he showed a a graphic relevant to us using Fangraph's playoff odds, right? And uh, he tried to say- isn't there some dispute about whether they were really Fangraph's playoff odds? Yes, they purported to be, at least. (laughs) Keep us out of this, please, sir. Right. He's trying to make the case that that MLB is a business in crisis, quote, right? And, you know, this is uh, pretty ridiculous. I mean, MLB just announced record revenues, uh, maybe not inflation-adjusted record, but record revenues in raw dollars. Although I guess he was uh, speaking about discrepancies and disparities between teams more so than the health of the overall industry. But he had a slide where he made the case that there had been a 75% increase since 2019 in teams that are out of contention on opening day. And he used Fangraph's playoff odds. And his criteria was teams listed as having a 25% chance or lower of reaching the playoffs as of opening day. And people have fact-checked this. I was going to do a mini stat blast to see if this actually held up, but I didn't have to because someone on Reddit did this yep. and the numbers do not check out. <laughs> it's, it's it's not clear what he was looking at. It, it's like they were accurate for the past few years, but he was comparing that to previous years. And it looks like maybe he was just looking at NL teams for those yeah. years. The numbers seem to match up if you just look at NL teams, which is obviously a skewed way of looking at things. So I don't know whether that was intentional just dissembling and, and misleading or whether this was uh, just fail son behavior and, and looking at the wrong list or, or what, but seemed to uh, present a misleading picture of actual competitiveness. And beyond that, like, again, he's speaking to a Reds fan group here. Right. Like, shouldn't he be trying to, to make these people excited about yeah. the future of the Reds? Instead, he's like, we have no chance. We'll never have any chance to compete. Right. And then even when he talked about the Reds' young prospects who were coming up, and, and they do have some promising ones, he said, as one of the attendees recalled, of course, we're going to lose them. So he's already looking, looking forward to when those players will leave or when they'll trade them away because uh, supposedly they can't afford them. So really just a master of PR here. I like how you know the, the ownership class looked at Kevin Mather and was like, I think... um." You know, we can do the same sort of thing as long as it's not recorded on Zoom. Like, we yeah. can just kind of give the same vibe. It's also rich coming from a club that, like, was literally in a playoff spot two yeah. years ago, three years ago, I guess, at this point. Mm-hmm. And 
managed to trade away the pieces of that competitive group, most of whom relative to sort of league salary numbers were not particularly expensive, and mm-hmm. then looked around and were like, I don't know, you just can't compete these days. You know, mm-hmm. we're, you know, it's like we're all looking for the guy who's responsible for this. <laughs> right, yeah. And it's like, I don't know, man. Like, I think that you had a competitive club like three years ago and have, you know, sort of engaged in a cost-cutting measure that is like, harsh even by the standards of some of the cheapest teams in baseball and then are like i don't know it's just really hard to compete and it's like you know what if that's your perspective once again just sell the team sell the team sell the team you know if Mm -hmm. you're if you're sitting there you're saying we have no hope of competing there's no way that this club can do what we needed to the jersey patches aren't competitive our broadcast deal doesn't hold up like okay it sounds like you've assessed this to be a losing proposition for your family sell the team and see if someone else can try their hand at it but they just want to keep cash and revenue checks right Mm -hmm. so like if you're going to elect to talk to people they are going to assess your statements within the sort of rubric of this is a representative of a professional baseball organization that is making claims that can be falsified so that's how they're gonna approach you dude like and the people in that room don't like you because you're you they like you because you're a representative of the reds a team they like so Mm -hmm. their sort of you know sort of grading scale for what you say is going to be that of a fans. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as C. Trent noted, like not everybody had the same interpretation of the tone that he did. And you're right that we don't have his comments in their entirety because, again, like they've at least learned to not record them on Zoom. Like <laughs> prior representatives of the team have. I know Mather wasn't technically an owner, I don't think. But, you know, it's like we have what we're given, but like Taken within the context of what this particular ownership group has said in the past, there's nothing here that is like disrupting my understanding of how they view the team or their fans or their players. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just such a funny thing. It's like, here we are, we're sitting in the middle of January, which I have just been reminded is terrifyingly close to opening (laughs) day. And within the context of Cincinnati sports, you literally have a playoff team in the NFL. Like there are alternatives for the people of Cincinnati to care about what are you doing, dude? Mm-hmm. What you yeah. doing? Yeah, right. And I think it is certainly true that the Reds are not one of the more valuable MLB franchises. So Forbes sure. had them as the, the fifth least valuable and Sportico had them as, I think, the eighth least valuable. But still somewhere between $1.2 and $1.4 billion valuation. And that was uh, last year. And so, yeah, if you can't compete, if you think that's actually the case, then you can get out and you can cash in quite nicely. And also, he's not going to talk about all the money that the Reds and every other team gets, whether they win or not, right? So there's that. And also, I think, yeah, the Castellinis are are maybe the least wealthy or among the least wealthy owners or or ownership groups. But again, there's a a richly rewarding exit strategy for them if they want to get out. And as people pointed out, there are other teams that do not make any more money than the Reds or are not worth any more money than the Reds or do not spend any more than the Reds and in many cases spend less than the Reds. You don't even have to look outside of the state of Ohio to find one of those teams, right? 
And so even if the system were totally stacked against the Reds and, and the game were really rigged, as Castellini is suggesting here, still, even working within the constraints of that system, there are teams that have done a, a far better job of putting competitive teams on the field and keeping them there. So it's just sort of self-defeating as a message to send to your fan base, like, we can't win, you know, <laughs> like, and if you don't like it, we'll just leave or you can not come. I mean, at least try Try to make your product sound appealing, which I know is difficult to do after you make the product a lot less appealing by trading away a lot of good players. But, geez, just sell the future. Talk about your young players. Talk about Joey Votto. Send some sort of positive message to your fans while you're speaking to a fan group and you're trying to put a positive spin on things and do some good PR here. So. Again, yeah, things that go viral often tend to be more negative things, but it doesn't sound like he is a a good spokesperson for this organization. And and perhaps not coincidentally, he hasn't done as much speaking. He hasn't (laughs) done a whole lot of uh, public addresses in the last year since his opening day comments. And I guess this was not a fully public address either, although parts of it became public. So that was one incident. Then in Baltimore, we have John Angelos, who is the son of Peter Angelos and really has uh, been the managing person for the Orioles for some time now. And he was at an event and this event was uh, about an Orioles donation. This was on Monday. MLK Day. Do you think it's okay for us to discuss this two days after MLK Day? Do you think it's it's not disrespectful to bring this up now? I have so little patience for this kind of stuff, Ben. <laughs> it just is is galling in a in a particularly irritating kind of way because right. he doesn't give a. I'm gonna do a swear. He doesn't yeah. give a shit about this having taken place on MLK. Like I don't yes. wanna. I don't know the man. Right. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. maybe I'm being unfair. Perhaps this interpretation lacks generosity on mm-hmm. my part. But the issue was that the question was asked, not that it was asked on a particular day. And one right. really yes. good way, if if it were a sincere objection, right, that we are here, <laughs> we are gathered here today, you know, <laughs> and he really were frustrated that it was detracting from what he thought the spirit of the event was, then make yourself available on other days. You know, when you paint yeah. your beats into a corner and say the only time you get to talk to me is is now and you're, you know, I'm going to take questions and you are here to ask them, of mm-hmm. course they're going to ask you about relevant stuff to the club. Like what other opportunity do they have to do that? Right. Yeah. So to give the full context here, this is uh, the Orioles were making a donation, a $5 million commitment to the College Bound Foundation, which is a real nonprofit that assists Baltimore City students with uh, completing college degrees, which is great. And the Orioles and and the Angeloses, as I understand it, they've been quite philanthropic. And that's one of the redeeming aspects of their ownership. So this was an event. At Camden Yards on Monday morning, set up to announce this, but there was a Q&A and it was open to the media. And John Angelus, who is the, the sole chairman and CEO of the Orioles at this point, 
he doesn't talk to the press. Right? No. He he does not talk to the press except seemingly when the Orioles announce that a a dinosaur act, and I say that with a lot of love, is going to play a concert at Camden Yards. So <laughs> he did a, a Zoom interview when the Paul McCartney concert was announced. And before that, the last time that he had actually addressed the, the media, the Baltimore media in person, was in January of 2019 when they announced the Billy Joel concert at Camden Yards. So that's about it. He doesn't make himself available for questions. And there are a lot of questions because there's a question about the Camden Yards lease, which we will mention with Dan later. And then there's an ongoing lawsuit where John Angelos's brother, Lewis, is uh, suing John and, and his mother about control of the Orioles. And so there have been questions about the long-term ownership of the franchise, so not necessarily whether the Orioles would move, but whether the Angeloses will continue to own the Orioles. And so there haven't been a lot of venues and opportunities to ask him questions about this. So Dan Connolly, who covers the Orioles for The Athletic and has covered the Orioles for decades at this point and is from the area, he asked John Angelos about this. And instead of answering the question or even just kind of saying, uh, you know, giving kind of a boilerplate, uninteresting answer and, and moving on, John Angelos took minutes. And, and this we did actually see. There's a video yes. and a transcript just to dress down Dan Connolly for having the, the impudence to ask this question on Martin Luther King Day of all days. And this is neither the time or the place to ask these questions, etc. So you're not going to take me up on the Martin Luther King Jr. part, are you now? Look, no, but seriously, I'm going, to, but I'm going to take you a little bit to task on it, okay? With all due respect, that's not an appropriate subject matter for this day. I find that to be highly inappropriate, and I think that your focus is completely out of touch and has no perspective whatsoever on what real-world people face. My family owns over 70% of the Orioles. You, you want to write that down? I know that. Keep going. Well, that's funny you do know. I don't think most people know that, actually. Well, I get paid to cover your team, but go ahead. <laughs> but today, on MLK Day, I'm not answering any of those questions. Okay, well, let me just respond very quickly. And say no, no, that, I don't want you to respond. Well, I just, I'm well, not going to entertain those questions on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Which is the day that you set up for us to talk to you. This is the second time that we have spoken to you in four years. Openly. Let's take another question. So Let's take and, another question. Let Let's take another question. Look, if John Angelus were available to the media all the time, then sure, you could ask him about that some other time and focus on this donation on that day. But he does not ever make himself available. And the sports media asked, like, can we attend and can we ask questions? And we're yeah. told by the team that yes. they could. There were no ground rules or, or like you, you can come, but you can't ask about this or anything that was agreed to beforehand. It was all fair game. And so because of that, I think it was a, an okay time to ask the question. And Angelos goes on this long, just uh, really condescending kind of rant about even asking the question. And yeah, as you said, 
Is it really that he is so offended by being asked this on MLK Day, or is it that he just didn't want to be asked this question, didn't want to answer the question, and was kind of hiding behind the occasion so as not to answer the question? And really, ultimately, it had a Streisand effect, and it brought much more attention to this because, again, if he had just quickly said, uh, let's sidebar about this later, or uh, let's uh, do an interview next week or or tomorrow or whatever it is, or you know, uh, we're not planning to sell the team or something like that, fine then everyone would have moved on probably but instead he sort of sidetracked and hijacked things to have this uh long address about how it wasn't even proper to ask the question at this time so it was uh quite ridiculous i i think to to go on at that length about this i also just think that like if you are positioning yourself as well first of all if you're bringing media there and you have indicated to them that they can ask questions and you have not established that there's any, you know, topic that is off limit in advance. It is pretty galling to be like, I can't believe you're not here to provide the appropriate public relations bump that I was asking you for. Like, Mm -hmm. get out of here with that. And also, you're at an event with a civic leader. And broadly, these questions are about like, what is the what is the team's commitment to the community that they operate in, right? Mm-hmm. Like, how are we to understand how you're going to operate within the city of Baltimore, wh- how you understand yourself relating to this place? And I think that, like, that line of questioning sort of broadly understood is completely appropriate, particularly when you have representatives of city government there, right? To say, like, what are we doing here? What do you, how do you understand yourself? What is your commitment to this place? Like that, I don't know, that strikes me as totally reasonable, right? Sure. Yeah. And in the same genre as uh, Phil Castellini <laughs> lamenting guaranteed contracts, Angelos said to Connolly, I think that your focus is completely out of touch and has no perspective whatsoever on what real world people face, <laughs> which again, coming from him, uh, yeah. not to say that billionaires can't be aware of uh, the plights of less financially fortunate people too, but uh, again, being lectured by a multi-billionaire who inherited his wealth from his father on the challenges that real world people face (laughs) and having perspective on that. Come on. And he also didn't seem to know that Dan Connolly was from the area and has a long history of covering the team. He's like, are you from here, et cetera? So he offered to uh, open up the books He said that he is very transparent, which kind of goes against the evidence of him never really talking to the press. But he invited Connolly and other members of the media to meet him next week on the third floor of the warehouse and to, quote, show you the financials of the Orioles. I'll show you the governance of the Orioles. I'll show you everything you want to know, and I'll answer all your questions, which is something that team owners never do. So I am skeptical Skeptical? (laughs) that this will happen. But... People should uh, try to set up that appointment. I think that they already have uh, attempted to. So we will see whether that happens or anything like that happens or whether once he's out of the spotlight again, he just uh, ducks that, which would not be at all surprising. But really just kind of great examples of uh, what we're about to talk to Dan about because uh, the underlying subtext to all of this is is always just kind of you should be grateful to have us and if you're not then we will leave and you will be bereft and that is uh, how teams including the Orioles have managed to extract a ton of public funding for ballparks and 
you know, people care about sports. So they, they've got us over a barrel. They know that. They've got us where they want us because people who are fans of teams, they really value having those teams in the area and they will put up with a whole lot and they won't put up with uh, you trading away everyone and basically giving you no reason to come to the park. <laughs> Reds fans and Ace fans will say, all right, well, where are we going to go? We're not going to go to your ballparks because you're not giving us a reason to. But at the same time, those owners will just pocket the money that they make without having fans come to the park because they don't even need that so much anymore. Yeah, it's just, you got to pick a lane, right? And I know I'm not saying anything particularly revelatory here, and I understand that it was always mostly cynical and profit-motivated, so I'm not pretending there's some like halcyon days we can hearken back to when it was all green fields and the cut of the grass, and, you know, like, I, I get it. I have my moments of being Pollyanna-ish about, like, what human beings are capable of, but I swear this isn't one of them, but it would just be nice if they would pick a Pick a lane, right? Like, are you a hyper-efficient, efficiency-maximizing, profit-maximizing entity, or are you a community institution that also makes money? Because in Baltimore's case in particular, like, at least in the way that the front office is conducting itself, right, in terms of the actual on-field, here's what we are as a baseball team, they have leaned toward the Astros part of their DNA, right? And it has redounded to their benefit in terms of the on-field product, but it has also had some of the same sort of blind spots that Houston had in the early days, right? Where you're trading away guys who are good when you're on the cusp of the playoffs and you're playing service time games and you're doing that stuff. Or are you, you know, a team that views yourself as as sort of woven into and critical to the the fabric of the city that you operate in? And you can be clever and you can make money while being a civic institution but you you know i think you can't lean quite as far as they seem to be leaning right now in the direction of the hyper you know efficient profit maximizer so like pick a lane and if you're gonna be the one thing like do us the favor of not being so wounded when Mm -hmm. we dare ask questions about it because that's what this is like you know you have decided to participate and be forward facing right and if you're going to do that people are going to if for no other reason that it is their literal job ask you questions about the franchise that you own (laughs) and they might do that at your pr opportunity and that isn't to say that like funding scholarships isn't good but i think we can be clear-eyed about at least what part of that motivation is on the part of an organization that is trying to you know be the beneficiary of tax dollars like you know part of the the galling thing of this era of sports ownership is that like we we actually are reasonably smart you know we're pretty savvy as both a a media core and as fans so we know what's going on you could treat us like adults and pretend that that we're all coming to this with eyes open Yeah, I think fans care less about whether owners are likable or good quotes than they do about whether they invest in the roster. But if you're not investing in the roster and you're also not likable, it's just not a great compo. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So we will take a quick break and we'll be back with Dan Moore to continue to discuss these issues in the state of ballpark funding and the A's. And why, even though owners continually tell us that they're not in a good business, they're all lining up to get involved in that business and their franchise valuations seem to have no ceiling. 
All right, we are back and we have company. We are joined now by freelance writer Dan Moore, who has contributed to The Ringer and many other places. He's a Bay Area writer and fan of Oakland sports teams, or I guess I should say sports team, which is what we kind of have him here to talk about. Hey, Dan. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. So you wrote a trilogy of features for The Ringer last year, and they're so intertwined that I almost don't know which one to start with, because I think they are kind of a constellation in the same sort of part of the sky here, because in April, you wrote about what cities lose when they lose pro sports, and this was mostly pegged to the A's threatening to leave for Las Vegas. And then in August, you wrote about the 30th anniversary of Camden Yards and how significant that ballpark has been, not just architecturally, but also when it comes to public funding of parks. And then in late November, you wrote about the exploding prices of pro sports franchises and how owning a sports franchise became such great business, contrary to what you will hear from a lot of sports franchise owners. So all these things really do go hand in hand in hand. And we wanted to have you on to talk about them because, as always, they're relevant to what we talk about here, right? And and there are a few franchise sales in MLB specifically that might be in the works. It was reported by Will Carroll not long ago that we could have announcements of two franchise sales sometime early this year. Of course, we know that the Angels one is ongoing. Diamondbacks also potentially two and maybe a stadium announcement there. And the Nationals are exploring a sale and might end up selling minority stakes because uh, their team isn't set up in such a fortuitous way for franchise sales, etc. So this is always relevant. And I, I guess maybe we can just start with the ballpark funding aspect, which uh, just really always seems germane and, and never seems to change. So. Tell us uh, how you got interested in this and sort of the evolution in thinking about how good a deal funding a a ballpark is. And of course, this is relevant to what it's worth to a a city to have a sports franchise. So that ties into one of your other pieces. (laughs) Yeah, sure. So my entry into all this was indeed Oakland and sort of what's been happening here, which in many different ways is a perfect microcosm of this larger story of how team owners go about to use a nice word you know arguing in favor of giving them lots of public money to <laughs> to build a new stadium and then where you know the, the, it it reaches back through history to Camden uh, and then you see it you know you mentioned one of the pieces i wrote about exploding prices that's sort of the result of a lot of this and so you know, there is a larger story. Oakland and what's happening here really does epitomize many aspects of it. I approached that story at first just as the, you know, through the lens of a fan. You mentioned I'm a lifelong Oakland sports fan. Today, that means I'm an A's fan. And mm-hmm. for years now, our ownership has been angling by a variety of means to secure public funding for a brand new stadium. And I just started reporting on it for local magazines and outlets like Oakland Sun Magazine and uh, the San Francisco Chronicle out here. And what really intrigued me at first was how interconnected the sort of all the moving parts were with, with the city. And so, you know, building a new baseball stadium, I quickly realized, did not just have implications on baseball, but like in Oakland, it impacts the port. 
it impacts uh, the city's ability to pay for other things. And uh, on the more positive side, you know, having a team here uh, bolsters community, creates pride. And so, you know, it's just, I, uh, it attuned me to how uh, integral pro sports are and have become to sort of everyday life and to our conception of of place and, and 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 what makes for a city or what makes a city unique and in some some cases what plagues a city and so it it's just a fascinating kind of all-encompassing uh topic and as it turns out it has a long history in this country as well and so anyway i'll pause there that's what uh <laughs> got me interested and one thing i will say too is that or you know the last thing i'll say is that i was very concerned about the fate of the a's when i started in this process and the more and more that i've reported on it and the more i've learned about the sort of science of all this the more it's made me concerned about the fate of oakland as it you know is connected to this deal yeah, I feel like there are so many places that we could go, but I guess maybe one that we can start with, and if you want to relate this back to Camden and how the sort of dialogue around Camden Yard sort of gave a blueprint for other sports owners to, I will use less polite language, extort <laughs> other municipalities <laughs> for uh -huh. public funds. You know, we can maybe start there or we can talk about it within the context of, of Oakland and the, the way that the arguments are being laid out by the A's in the city. But, you know, can you talk about sort of how the thinking and dialogue around municipalities need to retain these teams has changed over time? Because, and you note this in, I, I think, a couple of the pieces you wrote that we had this like brief window where it felt like we weren't maybe going to do this anymore, <laughs> right? Where the, the tide had sort of turned in the public consciousness around public funding of these stadiums and the sort of dubious economic uh, claims. But it seems like that maybe didn't stick as, as you've noted in a couple of places and has been noted in our intro here. So how did Camden Yard sort of change the sort of baseline expectation of these, these sports franchises and how has the public's expectation of our funding of them maybe changed over time? That's a very big question. I'm like asking <laughs> no. you like college seminar semester question. <laughs> Sorry. I got it. I got it. I'll give you the, uh, the most important cliff notes. So, you know, there are nuances to this, but things really by and large changed in 1984. And, and so Baltimore is integral to understanding what happened here. But in 1984, that's when uh, John Ursay moved, or Mr. Ursay, uh, moved the Colts from Baltimore to Indianapolis. And when he did that, you know, it sort of created this great political fear in Baltimore, but also elsewhere where the, there was this dawning realization that, hey, you know, team owners can and will do this, move uh, locally beloved institutions such as the Colts from the city to somewhere else for the pursuit of private profit. And so what the that fear translated in Baltimore to this kind of new logic where it was, if we want to keep our teams, we need to capitulate to our team owners' varying economic demands, which often revolve around uh, building them a publicly funded uh, new stadium. So that's what kind of laid the groundwork for Camden. Uh, similar logic was happening elsewhere, like in Chicago with the White Sox Stadium at the time. Uh, but the reason Camden is so important is because 
what manifested in all this logic was, of course, Camden, a you know renowned, beautiful, objectively beautiful stadium that once Camden was built, it was like the logic was reinforced. It was like, oh, okay, you know, of course we need to do this to build team owners, their stadiums, not only to keep them, but also to derive benefit from stadiums. Camden was seen as a success. It was, uh, you know, thought to revitalize Baltimore. And so what happens after Camden is just, you know, that's when the stadium construction boom really begins in earnest. And so that's not long thereafter. People and our political leaders in Oakland uh, approved an expansion to the Coliseum, had a bit of a different um, result than Camden Yards, but you also see it happening in in Houston and uh, cities all across America. Uh, San Diego, San Francisco, beautiful new stadiums are being built for the large part with lots of public funding and typically set in urban, uh, you know, urban cores like Baltimore. What you mentioned about, you know, the period when, uh, not, not long ago, when we thought, oh, maybe we'll stop all this public funding. That was a product of two things. One, uh, as we went kind of gangbusters with building all these publicly funded expensive stadiums, economic consensus became, you know, it crystallized uh, very clearly around the fact that building big publicly funded stadiums are, is not a uh, good means of uh, galvanizing an economy. In fact, new stadiums are not really economic generators at all. Uh, as exemplified by many cities, they can hurt the city. That's what you see happening in Oakland. Uh, something similar happened in St. Louis, where far from uh, you know stimulating development around the stadium or increasing property values, uh, which are all things that uh, thanks to Camden, were assumed would sort of inherently accompany stadium development. Actually, in Oakland and St. Louis and many other places, the development impoverished the city. It took lots of money out of the general fund. Uh, in Oakland, we are still paying off the debt that we took out to build the expansion to the Coliseum in 1995 to get the Raiders back. And again, that was sort of informed by the Camden logic. So it became clear, this is not a good way to stimulate an economy. This is not a good way to, you know, help a city economically. But at the same time, however, it, it there comes a slight caveat with that. And it's when stadiums are a majority privately funded and the city doesn't need to take out debt or the state doesn't need to take out debt to facilitate their construction, that can be beneficial to the city. That's what you see happening like in San Francisco, where the Giants uh, privately funded a lot of their stadium construction. The city still kicked in some for infrastructure improvements and site reclamation, you know, around the stadium. But in my mind, what that represented was a bit more of a symbiotic partnership where the team or the team owners, you know, provide most of the funding for the stadium and the city helps. Uh, but that dynamic makes sense because, you know, traditionally all of or many, most of the profits from these stadiums have gone to team owners. And so, you know, I'll, I'll backtrack just a bit. When the Raiders deal, for example, served to plunge Oakland into all kinds of destabilizing debt, it was by and large a boon for the Raiders uh, who are now worth, you know, $5 billion or whatever they are today. 
So the period in time in which, you know, we kind of awoke to all this and we said, okay, we need to, we need, you know, we need to stop doing these crazy deals. Uh, that's what that was a product of. And as you say, we, I, it, it seems have drifted back more into the, you know, the paradigm where we are willing and in some cases, apparently eager to shovel lots of, lots of public money at team owners and to help them build new stadiums. That's what you're seeing, you know, right now in Nashville and recently in Buffalo. Uh, and we can get into, I think, why that is happening, but I, I hope that I came close to answering your question around the sort of long history of that. Yeah, and the public funding is ongoing in Camden's case because even last year there was a, another outlay. The Maryland General Assembly uh, allotted $1.2 billion in public funding to reinvest and reimagine the Camden Yard Sports Complex, which is Oriole Park and also the Ravens Stadium, M&T Bank Stadium. So that's still happening, and mm -hmm. this is also uh, newsy, I suppose, because the Orioles' lease on Camden Yards actually expires after this season, and they have until February 1st, so very soon, to exercise a five-year extension on that that would take them out through 2028, which presumably will happen. But mm -hmm. you also note that it seems like stadium construction tends to go in roughly 30-year cycles, yes. and because Camden Yards inspired a wave of ballpark building in MLB in the years after mm -hmm. Camden Yards opens, then we're coming up on that time, right, where a bunch of teams will probably start pushing for new ballparks. And right. I mentioned the Diamondbacks and, and the Royals. Of course, Kaufman predates Camden Yards, but the Royals are trying to drum up interest in a, a new ballpark closer to the city in Kansas City. And although they have uh, said that they would be privately funding some of that, there's still a big chunk of it that seems like the construction costs, etc., would have to be made up by public funding of some sort. So I don't want to undersell the positive aspects of Camden Yards in that it's a beautiful ballpark. And mm -hmm. I think it inspired a, a lot of other really nice ballparks. And it's still a great place to go to a game, even when the Orioles are not good. And now they're getting good again. So it'll be a really good place to go to a game. But you were bringing attention to these other aspects, just the ways that it was so influential. And they were able to extract that deal in part because uh, they were afraid that the Orioles would leave Baltimore, the city officials. You know, it's the old playbook of we will leave if you don't give us what we want. And yes. that's an effective playbook because it sucks to lose a sports team. <laughs> it does. I mean, it's hard to put a value on it exactly, but there is a great value. Anyone who's rooted for a sports team knows it. It can be really devastating when your sports team loses. So yes. does that mean that you just hand over a, a blank check and say, do what you want with our public funds? And if we can't afford to pay for public school or whatever, at least we'll have the sports team. No, but there certainly is some leverage there. That's that's undeniable. So yeah. when cities and, and when teams use Camden Yards as an example of a success, how accurate is that just when it comes to the, the revitalization of the area and the economic development of the area? Because we know it's a, a really nice ballpark, but did it actually do what it is said to have done for Baltimore, for the city itself? I think that the evidence would suggest that the impacts were overstated, that, you know, the area around Camden Yards is, it is not as brimming with new development and, and corollary development, certainly not to the extent that it was believed would happen immediately after. I've talked to folks who you know have talked about how their property values in like condos and apartments that they've owned around 
the area have actually gone down since then. And so I do think that that was probably overstated a bit. I, I will say that there are, to be fair, there are examples, again, I, I go back to San Francisco and San Diego, where that auxiliary development has occurred. You know, mm-hmm. the downtowns of the area around San Francisco, the downtown of San Diego. The ballparks have, I think, undeniably benefited those places. And I think that that really is the Camden model manifest. In Baltimore, in particular, I do believe, though, that those effects were sort of overstated. I'm curious how that interacts with, you know, and the, the potential benefit that it might redound to the city and the people who live there interacts with the the teams and their owners' increasing desire to themselves privately own those areas, right? Because, you know, if you have if you have a bunch of businesses that sprout up and, you know, I've been to the area around Petco and you're right, it's it's lovely. There's cool stuff to do there and, you know, there's stuff to do there when the Padres aren't playing. But, you know, if you look at a lot of the teams, especially in Major League Baseball, one of the ways that they have tried to supplement their income away from the product on the field, which you touch on in, in one of your pieces, is to, you know, have these areas that are largely owned by them that offer them real estate development opportunities. Mm-hmm. And it's not like you have, you know, a mom and pop going into that spot. Like the I don't think the businesses in the battery are, are around, you know, yeah. Atlanta Stadium are, you know, local longstanding ones, right? So how does how does that interplay tend to work? <laughs> Well, I think that this new era that we're entering, you know, I think Camden, uh, the Giants Stadium, San Diego, uh, those are sort of examples of what might be thought of as like the previous chapter of stadium construction. What you're hinting at now, like what Atlanta represents is that's the new chapter. And and that's right, where you're creating these kind of self-contained baseball or sports and entertainment districts. And, you know, I I think that the jury is very much still out on the symbiotic economic benefit uh, of those places. You know, in my reporting for The Ringer, I think that what you're seeing in Atlanta, for example, is it's been very costly for taxpayers there to fund and uh, support the battery and, and all that development. And you're right that, you know, the what economic development uh, it has spurred or or supported tends to have what uh, the economist Greg, Greg Leroy told me were small ripple effects. And so it's less seismic in influence or less widespread in positive influence than perhaps uh, subsidizing other kinds of employers like a complex manufacturing plant or you know a, some other kind of corporate headquarters where it might create long-term jobs and you know other supportive businesses. I think we are seeing in, in, in the battery is an example of high public investment in probably uh, low ripple effect development. And, you know, I think what it highlights is actually something that just we need to recognize about this paradigm. It's something that Roger Knoll, professor at Stanford, talks about a lot, where if we're going to build and invest in things like the battery or these kinds of ballparks, uh, Cities and states should just be very clear about what they're investing in. We would be wise to just recognize plainly that these are not going to be meaningful economic generators, that team owners and the economic impact reports that they commission to support their proposals, they say certain things about how their stadiums are going to impact and benefit the economy. And 
that largely doesn't happen, especially if the public investment that they're asking for is very high. What you are investing in as a city or as a state, to Ben's point earlier, you are knowingly investing in the intrinsic benefits of having a team rooted in your community for a long time. And those are meaningful, but we should just be very clear, you know, about uh, like if you're selling, like, again, this is top of mind in Oakland right now, but it, it, right now what the, what uh, Dave Cavill and John Fisher are asking for are roughly are, are hundreds of millions of dollars in uh, public investment to support their stadium proposal. And while they're very well, might be and, and could be, you know, economic benefits to that. Really, the gist of the investment is we are maintaining the intangible benefits of sports. And I think there are lots of people in Atlanta that would tell you that that investment has been worth it. But, you know, the reason it's worth it is for keeping the Braves and, you know, all that, all of that entails it has less to do with the outsized economic benefits of the battery development. Yeah, there's this uh, whole dichotomy between economists and media members. You mentioned Roger Knoll and then J.C. Bradbury and mm-hmm. Neil DeMoss, the co-author of Field of Schemes, who are sort of uh, sounding the alarm or banging the drum or just uh, exposing the facts about what the actual economic impacts are. And then there are these very motivated reports, as you mentioned, kind of this cottage industry of, of people who will churn out these reports that say that it's creating a zillion jobs and it's going to result in a zillion dollars and these things tend not to be so true for for many reasons, which we've touched on. You know, there are only so many game day events at a new stadium, and so it's just going to be empty and not bringing in people a lot of days of the year. And then the construction mm-hmm. jobs are temporary, and then a lot of the spending that will go toward just going to the team and, and spending on things at the game and then the neighborhoods, that will not be necessarily an influx of new dollars from outside the area. It'll be people in the area spending on that instead of spending on something else. And so the the net gain won't actually be that great. If they were just to come out and say, hey, this is going to cost a pretty penny here, but you like having the sports team, right? <laughs> it's like, again, I don't know that that would make it better, but it would make it a little less galling, maybe, just that they weren't trying to <laughs> sort of sell you this bill of goods here if they were just coming out straight up and saying, yeah, this, uh, you know, we're not going to turn a profit on this, but you will turn a profit in the sense that you get to enjoy having this sports team and that's worth a lot to you. So I guess it's just that the ballparks and, and the games are very visible visible and not everyone in a community cares about sports and roots for the sports team but those who do really 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 care and the opportunity costs are just a little less visible i guess you know maybe it's visible if you're closing libraries or or schools are underfunded but it's maybe just a, a little less salient at least to some people and that sort of spread around whereas it's a very binary either we have this big league team or we do not and there's just a, a real gaping gulf in people's lives if that's something that's that's been a part of, of their whole life and, and their day and their family tradition. Yeah. And that fear is, is you know, fear of, uh, of not having a sports team, of having a, uh, a team ripped out from your community. It's very real and it's totally valid. I mean, we have felt it here in the Bay Area. Other places have felt it. And team owners, you know, very much leverage that fear as Meg said, to extort cities <laughs> and fan bases into supporting these projects. And I think that, yeah, I think that, you know, the one important thing to note is that historically 
you know, we have as cities and as citizenry gotten a bit better about this. I, I don't want to, you know, uh, cast too dismal of a pal on this, but, uh, you know, the original kind or the leases and the developer agreements that cities and states were signing with team owners during the Camden Yards stadium boom were remarkably one-sided. They, it, I, I think in, in Baltimore, it resulted in both the Ravens and the Orioles getting to play in totally publicly funded stadiums uh, without having to pay any rent for a period of time, while also funneling much of the profits from the stadium, ticket sales, advertising, all those things to the team owners. And so the only benefit really that Maryland was getting in that instance was the intangible benefits of having their team. And, you know, I don't know, I, I think that the more that we state that plainly, you know, I think that it gives people who are not billionaire team owners of sports teams a bit so, a bit more solid footing to advocate for deals that are more two-sided, that funnel at least a bit more of the spoils from these things to the community, to the people, as opposed to just to team owners. I'm from Seattle, so extortion feels like the the proper term, <laughs> having lived through the Sonic saga. Yes. I wonder now if we could spend a little bit of time talking about your other piece where you were trying to track just how these teams got to be so profitable. And a big part of that is the corporate welfare that we end up seeing on the stadium and tax subsidy side. But I think that if, to a point you made in this piece, if you were to talk to you know, a team owner in 1900 about what sports franchises might be worth in the future, they'd fall over, right? I mean, billions would sound like a, a big number no matter what, but the trajectory of these franchises and their fortunes has really shifted over time. And there's a lot that goes into that, but you identified a couple of, of key factors. So maybe we can we can start walking through those. Sure. So, you know, you mentioned the corporate welfare piece, which really becomes present in this calculus in the 1980s, as I, men as I mentioned. There are two other pieces worth mentioning. The first is the rise of television. Before TV and the influx of media rights deals, you know, into the economic equation of being a team owner, owning a pro team and profiting from it or attempting to profit from it was really a matter of kind of employing a huckster promotional mentality to get people to attend games. And that was a much harder thing to do, you know, so far as a, as a business proposition, basically to run a profitable team, you had to sell out, uh, you know, a majority of your home games. That changes fundamentally with the introduction of TV and, you know, as it expands and becomes a, a more, uh, you know, fundamental element of our lives and certainly the predominant method by which we consume sports, you know, today, media rights deals comprise the vast uh, bulk of how pro teams make their money, such that persuading people to attend games is a tertiary concern at best. Uh, like in baseball, thanks to, uh, you know, a variety of factors, the owner, let's say John Fisher, uh, does not need to worry about compelling people to attend games, really, because he knows that the media rights deals, the MLB signs are going to direct money back to the A's. And so that dynamic 
totally changed the prospect of owning a team. It created a sort of passive income stream for team owners that only grew um, with time, such you know, where today it's worth billions of dollars in some cases. There's also sort of the permission granted team owners across leagues to operate as cartels. And, and, and you know, this has been widely reported. I'm not really, you know, breaking any news here. The fact that pro leagues in America and really teams in their regions enjoy monopolies. In baseball, their right to operate as a monopoly uh, from a league perspective is enshrined legally. But in the other sports, it is, you know, granted to them effectively. Whereas, you know, there cannot legally be a competitor that rises up to challenge Major League Baseball. NFL, you do see competitors from time to time, you know, like the XFL, you know, might be an example. But it's gotten to the point now, thanks in part to the you know, media rights deals, where, the, you know, no competitor of the NFL really has a shot. And so what team owners enjoy now, it's, it's permission to operate a monopoly, which, you know, is a monopoly with these massive income streams that come in from media rights deals. That's a um, compelling business proposition. And I think it's why owning a pro team today is, as in the words of a few different reporters that I spoke to for that piece uh, from Sportico, it's in a way the best investment a very rich person could make right now. And it's, and it's been like that for 40 to 50 years, depending on how far back you want to go. You know, people thought Jerry Jones was crazy for paying like $180 million, I think it was for the Cowboys in 1989. The Cowboys are worth, you know, some crazy multiple more than that now. So that's sort of been what's changed and how it's changed. I hope that answered your question. Yeah, I think that skyrocketing rise in franchise values, that's really what makes the public funding of parks exasperating. Yeah, because, it's uh, so you know, galling. <laughs> right. It's it's like if owning a team were just not economically viable and they really were struggling, if it were like a public utility, if it really were a nonprofit, not Phil mm-hmm. Castellini calling the Reds a nonprofit, but, but actually <laughs> a nonprofit – then you might be more understanding of, uh, well, if we want to keep this in operation, then we got to fork over some cash. But where you have municipalities uh, ponying up to keep these teams, and meanwhile, the owners of these teams, who are often extremely wealthy to begin with, are just making money hand over fist either year by year or whenever or if ever they sell the team, then I think that makes it a lot less easier to square because uh, clearly they don't need the handout. And I, I think one thing that there's a sort of a parallel here You note that there's just this unquantifiable but still very real and significant value to the community in having a sports team. There's sort of a a similar value to owners or prospective owners, which you you note in your piece that, yeah, it's a great investment just because uh, it gives you great returns. But also it's kind of fun to own a team, right? And you get to be part of this exclusive rich person club and you get to be a big shot and you get to be seen as important and people want to talk to you, right? And so that's kind of unquantifiable, but also clearly significant. So it it sort of works both ways. It's just sort of people like sports. They like consuming sports and they like owning sports. Totally. And that aspect, the kind of unquantifiable value add of owning 
a pro team of being in, you know, this most exclusive of rich guy clubs, I think as uh, Bill Simmons wrote back in the day, that's only becoming more tangible. That, that, that value is only increasing. And a few reasons come to mind. One is that, you know, as our attention spans collectively become more and more fragmented, pro sports are sort of ascending. They're like the only source of monocultural fascination that we have left. And so to be the owner of a pro football team is to enjoy a kind of cultural supremacy that no other, that very few other, you know, roles in society grant. And so, you know, I don't know, that's definitely something that's very important to keep in mind as that benefit, in addition to, you know, increased revenue, in addition to the eventual payday that team owners get, you know, the the value of teams obviously continuing to increase. That, that, that's just something for all of us to keep in mind when we're having this conversation. And especially when people like Phil Castellini talk about how his industry is in crisis and how the Reds are, you know, this struggling nonprofit, you know, I think that that's just so obviously not grounded in truth. And it's just important for us to keep these counterweights in mind. I'm curious how long you anticipate it being as good a business as it is, because I... You know, I obviously like baseball is not a nonprofit. Baseball is realizing tremendous profits, you know, and those profits pale in comparison to some of the profits that football or basketball are realizing. But we can see pockets of potential disruption to that when we think about, you know, how how long are these cable deals going to be as lucrative as they are? And mm-hmm. so do you anticipate this being something that just continues to you know, rise up and up? Or is there a dip that might present itself within the roller coaster? <laughs> Just to piggyback on that, you had some scenarios in your piece, like how does this, could this get disrupted? And, right. and some of them were like civil war, yeah. <laughs> like that might do it. The <laughs> like, decline it might, of democracy. It, yeah, it know. might take just like the fracturing of society. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Maybe. I, I had a lot of fun talking to these, you know, professors and economists and throwing out scenarios like, well, you know, what if, you know, there was a World War Three. Would, would, would that finally <laughs> stop? Would that stop the ride? Like, would that do it? And uniformly, they all express doubt as to whether even that would, would do it. And I think, you know, one reason being that at least in America, so long as pro teams enjoy the monopolistic privileges that they do, and, uh, you know, uh, so long as like competition is often, it's the reason for anti Trust law, you know, it, it, it's often sort of what can be a counterweight to, to this sort of thing, right? And as long as competition is effectively outlawed in the context of pro sports in America, that's one reason this will likely continue unabated. You know, there were some other scenarios that some economists and professors brought up, like, you know, perhaps in the case of football, public, you know, like the demand uh, the consumer demand for the sport falls off to a meaningful extent because people are so offended by injuries or something like that. I don't necessarily think that's going to happen anytime soon, but there are some hypotheticals that you could that you know put out there that might impact the demand side of the equation. But you know, everyone else that I talked to kind of was you know pretty certain and and, and a little 
fearful of the fact that all all signs indicate that this kind of continues for the foreseeable future, you know, and that's sort of how it feels to me as well. Yeah. And just to circle back to Oakland, there was a development just recently where one way that Oakland was trying to satisfy the A's demands was to get this $180 million federal grant that was uh, supposed to be for vital infrastructure projects. And I think federal politicians, and this is, uh, I guess, the Department of Transportation, they're maybe a a little less receptive to the entreaties of of a team or a city for ballpark Mm -hmm. funding than a local politician who might actually have their, their job at stake because of this would be. And so that grant request was denied. There are some other grant requests just through the state or, or more local level that, that they could still try to make up that difference in. So that was one thing. There is a deadline of sorts, which is just a little less than a, a year away now. This is something that's in the CBA, and it's not really a, a deadline from the city's perspective. It's more of an incentive for the A's to get something done, because if they don't have a ballpark commitment by January 15th, 2024, then they would lose their revenue sharing, right? Yes. So what do you think will happen here? Because it doesn't seem like Vegas is super eager to just hand over a a ballpark to the A's. So will there eventually be some sort of compromise here or will Oakland lose yet another franchise? Oakland is such an interesting, and this comes back to why I was so interested in in it to begin with. What's, What's sort of happening in Oakland is politicians here are, you know, a lot of people would say they're not doing this enough, but they are trying to arrange a relationship that's more definitively two-sided than certainly what's you've seen historically here and what is kind of what you're also seeing in places like Buffalo or Nashville. Uh, there are lines being drawn in the sand about what Oakland wants from Fisher and the A's is X amount of affordable housing provided by the A's in their auxiliary real estate development. They want X amount of economic community benefits to go back to the neighborhoods that are going to be impacted by the stadium development. And uh, they've been adamant that they will not take out any debt or go you know, into the general fund to pay for them. And I, I, I bring all that up because, you know, especially that last point, not going into the general fund, that limits Oakland's options so far as how they can assist with the funding for this. And that was one reason why the grants were so important. So where we have now is you have Oakland, the city, you know, it's sort of an amorphous term, but political leaders here uh, are, uh, they have certain, you know, non-negotiables where they say, we need this in a deal. We need some form of investment from Fisher, the private side, uh, to make it more symbiotic, to make it more mutually beneficial. On the A side, they have been equally adamant that uh, they're actually not going to pay any more than Y percent of affordable housing or set aside, you know, uh, they have differing perspectives on ultimately what should be expected of them in this partnership. And so that underlies a kind of philosophical divide, I think, that you're seeing play out here where Fisher and the A's don't want to give up more than what they've already consented to. Oakland itself does not want to give up more and is asking for more from the A's than what they've gotten from team owners in the past. And so we're in the midst of a standoff. The standoff has been exacerbated by this grant. One reason these federal grants that Oakland applied to were important is because they comprised a big part of how they were going to fund 
the side of, you know, the infrastructure and the side of the project that they've already agreed to. So now you have a shortfall, which it highlights perfectly sort of the, the tension here, because one way the shortfall could be plugged is let's say Oakland right now is on the hook per their agreement as it is, you know, sort of progressed for roughly $600 million. That's what they need to find a way to contribute to the project in particular for offsite infrastructure. The A's have insisted that they're not going to kick back any more of their own money to that. So it's on Oakland to find a way to, to pay for that. John Fisher, the owner of the A's, is worth more than $2 billion. He could very well find more money to contribute, maybe meet Oakland halfway with that. Doing so, in my mind, would represent what Oakland is kind of going for, which is a different kind of partnership between city and local team. What's going to be really interesting to see play out is if Fisher consents to that, or if not, if, you know, he doesn't budge and Oakland has trouble, you know, plugging that gap, this grant was going to be, again, one way that they do that. That's a problem. And I don't think anyone is exactly sure what happens in that instance. Oakland has talked about playing with other mechanisms for generating public funds. I'm going to butcher the details here, so I won't even go into them. Complicated financial things that they're thinking about doing to create more money. Fisher, again, remains resolute in his unwillingness to provide more money, but maybe he buckles on that. So I don't know. We're, we're in the midst of a very interesting kind of inflection point. The last thing I'll say about Las Vegas is politicians there, by all accounts so far, are no more eager to subsidize the A's and build them a publicly funded stadium than politicians in Oakland are. And so my money heretofore would have been that the Vegas thing was sort of a bluff. But what makes the Vegas situation interesting is how involved Major League Baseball has gotten. Um, I believe that they have said that they would waive the A's relocation fees if they went to go to Las Vegas. And of course, they're sort of pressuring that. And so if Vegas were to happen, it, it, you might even see John Fisher putting more of his own money into a stadium in Vegas just because he's got MLB behind him and it's a little easier to build large-scale public-private projects there. So there's obviously a lot of moving pieces. I fear that answer was horribly convoluted. Um, but the high level is we are in a standoff in Oakland. No one's really sure what's going to happen. And the Vegas threat is looming with support from Major League Baseball. Last thing, there's the suggestion you consider in your piece that maybe sports franchises now are becoming not just the province of mere multi-billionaires like John Fisher, but but mega multi-billionaires, the Steve Cohens of the world, right? And there's this idea, well, maybe that's a good thing because if the ultra, ultra, ultra elite, the, the 0.1% of the 0.1%, if they're the only ones who can't afford to buy these teams or they just become such a prestigious little bobbles to add to your vast hoard of wealth that they are the ones who outbid everyone else that that might actually be a good thing in the long run because uh, you might have Steve Cohen type owners who are not really trying to turn a profit as much as say the Castellinis are or not trying to to pocket as much money because they have so much already that they can just operate their franchise competitively mm -hmm. what do you think of that idea well I have become 
sympathetic to it. The experience that people have undergone in Oakland has illuminated kind of one fundamental lesson, or at least one that's pertinent to our conversation here, which is that sports is a business, yes, but it's also way less fun when it is, you know, only a business. When the concerns of the people who own your team revolve around tidy profits uh, and always turning a profit rather than winning games or, you know, working alongside the community to put a product on the field that we can all be proud of and, and invest in. And so if we got to a point where it was only the Steve Cohens uh, of the world who owned pro teams and turning a profit was less of a concern in comparison to bringing glory upon, yeah, yourself as Steve Cohen, but also the community that you represent, that would at the very least be more fun. And I think that, you know, it would for fans represent a more fulfilling experience of, of supporting pro teams. Yeah. So in that sense, I, I definitely am sympathetic to it. And I can, the one thing I, I will say is that the opposite side of the spectrum, you see the results in Oakland, in the stands, the A's not only were the worst team in baseball or among the worst teams in baseball last year, but they had the lowest attendance in all of baseball. That's a product more than anything else of this team being run the way that it's been run. Right. Yeah. And to the extent that if we get to a point where teams are not run like that, it would at the very least be a more rewarding fan experience. Got to steer into the skids then. It's not to, that the problem is is uh, too many billionaires. It's that they don't have enough billions. We got to get. <laughs> and, not, and not like private equity billions. Like right. to be clear, we want, mm-hmm. I mean, I know Steve Cohen's billions are hedge fund billions, but when it, mm-hmm. when it turns to P, that's not much better. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. right. Right. All right. Well, we will link to all of these pieces because uh, even though this was an in-depth discussion, there is much more depth that we did not get into. And you can find Dan on Twitter at DMO Writer. You can also find his website at danmorewriter.com. And we wish you the best as an A's fan. I guess there's always Oakland Roots SC, no matter yeah. what happens to, to the A's. <laughs> hey. There are lots of uh, other great things about Oakland that are not sports team related. So That's right. And, and if you're ever in Oakland and over the soccer season, go check out a Roots game, man. They kick ass. Yeah, I think they have uh, outdrawn the A's at, at times recently. Which, <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> yeah. That's correct. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, Dan. Thanks, guys. All right, so let's wrap up with the pass blast, and this will be well in line with what we've been talking about for most of this episode, fortuitously. I did not tell Jacob what we would be talking about, but it just so happens that this is right along the same line. So this pass blast is from 1957 and from Jacob Pomeranke, Sabres Director of Editorial Content and Chair of the Black Sox Scandal Research Committee. Jacob writes, 1957, funny like a clown? Despite winning four pennants in five years, the Brooklyn Dodgers continued to see their attendance drop at Ebbets Field throughout the 1950s. Owner Walter O'Malley made a desperate move to liven things up by hiring a new mascot to work at home games in 1957. He recruited a circus clown from Ringling Brothers named Emmett Kelly, who had appeared in many Hollywood films and TV shows. 
Kelly's stint as a Brooklyn bum, as Dodgers fans were often called, began during spring training in 1957. He dressed up in sad face makeup and shabby tramps clothes and went through his routine, joking with players and umpires before games and between innings. The Sporting News considered the whole idea to be unbecoming of a major league team, writing in an editorial on February 6, 1957, quote, Emmett Kelly has brought mirth and happiness to millions as the best-known circus clown in America, if not the world. He has won a well-deserved place in the affections of young and old alike. For all his talent, his employment by the Brooklyn Dodgers must be viewed with some misgivings by those who believe that baseball people should confine themselves to selling baseball. The Dodgers are by no means the first to seek extra entertainment for their fans, not to mention extra stimulation for their turnstiles. But one can't help wonder if the engagement of a professional clown is the right procedure for the champions of the (laughs) National League. There was a time when one more clown on the Brooklyn payroll would have passed almost unnoticed. Is baseball in Brooklyn or elsewhere unable to stand on its own merits? Wherever attendance slumps, does the remedy rest in borrowing hypodermics from other fields of entertainment or in applying greater promotional and selling effort to the basic product? Jacob concludes, Emmett Kelly couldn't save the Brooklyn Dodgers, of course, whose attendance fell by nearly 200,000 fans in 1957, and Walter O'Malley had much bigger plans for Hollywood anyway. That fall, he announced he was moving the team to Los Angeles. Kelly did not go with the team to California, saying the L.A. Coliseum was too big for one clown. And the idea of mascots at ball games didn't stick around either. It took another 20 years before the San Diego Chicken and the Philly Fanatic became a phenomenon that every team would soon copy. So even though Bill Veck was uh, around doing his promotional efforts, and even though you had the whole tradition of the clown princes of baseball, Max Patkin and his predecessors, they were a people who apparently thought that for a team as successful as the Dodgers, it was uh, sending the wrong signal to have a clown. So I guess uh, now the, the owners kind of clown themselves sometimes so that's the uh replacement for having a a literal clown although we have mascots also now i think that it just goes to show how i mean there's a lot to this but it's just threading the mascot needle ben it's so (laughs) it's so tricky right because you're designing something so you have to make choices with like real intentionality but often the choices go awry like i guess and this probably exists what i'm saying is i want to read the long form on designing gritty right because (laughs) gritty manages to be so many of the things that at least people our age seem to want in their mascots right it's Mm -hmm. weird but it's not like hokey weird it's not try hard weird it's genuinely weird yeah it's chaotic but not in a way that feels I don't know, like you're being granted permission for chaos by your parents, which sometimes they (laughs) resemble. It's obviously horny. And that one does feel like it's on purpose. But again, that's a real hard one to thread because sometimes you like, you know, you end up with like Mrs. Met where you know that Mm. someone sat in a room and was like, look, we want, we acknowledge that there are going to be some number of people in the fan base who want to, you know, with the mascot. And Mm -hmm. We want those people to feel seen, but we yeah, we can't can go to make Anthrocon with uh, Andrew yeah. McCutcheon. <laughs> yeah, but we know we can't go too far in that direction. But like somebody decided, like how curvaceous to make her. Yes. That was a choice. Like they mm-hmm. decided to. 
<laughs> so it's just really hard. Like, um, I, I know this is not the point, but have you seen the um the mascot for the Seattle Kraken, Ben? No, I don't think so. Can you Google it real quick? You I know, can. just like real. Booey the troll. Isn't this the most horrifying thing you've ever seen in your entire life? And as an aside, both fanat- the fanatic and Gritty would kick the crap out of this mascot if they saw it in real life. Like, it's just it's just a horror show of previously unknown dimensions. It's supposed to be the Fremont Troll, which is under the Fremont Bridge in Seattle. Mm-hmm. But again, like, that's a weird cultural institution almost in Seattle. And they tried to cutify it. And so it's not scary. And it's not weird. And it's got a... I mean, this this troll is working with a badonk that just confuses me based on... Anyway, I'm just saying mascot design seems really hard. Yeah, I think Gritty's googly eyes do a lot of work. I think that really conveys his unhinged quality. Yes, because it's just... Yeah, man. Anyway, and he can't have a real clown because... You want people to arrive at the clown conclusion on their own. You can't hand it to them because then you're admitting defeat, you know? So mm-hmm. anyway, it's yeah. tricky business, mascot yeah, design. Yeah, you can easily end up with Dandy, the short-lived Yankees mascot who oh is a favorite God. of yours or a <laughs> favorite in your Dandy. nightmares. Yeah, so yeah. just a, a mere uh, 22 years or so in New York elapsed between Emmett Kelly, the Dodgers clown, and Dandy, the short-lived Yankees mascot, which, again, I guess was introduced when the Yankees had fallen on, well, I was going to say they had fallen on, on hard times, but that was the case in the early 70s, not so much in the, the late 70s and early 80s. The Yankees were doing just fine there. So really, I, I guess there was a, kind of a mascot creep where franchises that might have considered themselves above such things, at least briefly, right. decided that we can get in on the mascot game before we can then have that backfire and be disturbing and and then go back to being the Yankees and and we don't have mascots unless they're turtles so <laughs> I still <laughs> really. think the 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 worst current major league mascot is blooper mm, mm-hmm. blooper's the worst one going right now cuz it's like a weird fleshy it's a weird <laughs> fleshy fanatic i don't know it's got the things in its ears i don't, I don't like it that feels like it's you know, I don't want to. I don't want to incite a panic, but it feels satanic to me in a way. I enjoyed <laughs> Blooper's wholesome relationship with new Red Sox center fielder Adam Duvall's son, but now that Duvall's left Atlanta, we don't even get yeah, to enjoy that on a kids, regular basis anymore. You know, little kids don't have refined taste. That's how children's <laughs> television continues to persist. It's fine; <laughs> they develop taste over time. But there's a reason that parents end up like hating kids TV sometimes because like they they attach themselves to anything like sorry to that kid. But, you know, I don't think we need to take it as a mark of refinement. I'm not making fun of a child. I'm saying that his (laughs) lack of taste is age appropriate. That's all I'm saying. I'm not making fun of the kid. The kid seems nice. Seems like a cute, nice kid. I'm just saying bloopers terrifying and sent from the devil. Yep, that is uh, why parents so highly revere Bluey because right. you can actually watch that as an adult and it is not painful and an assault on your senses. So maybe oh, Bluey no. should be a big league mascot. The way that That's... people talk about kids TV sounds like a hostage situation a lot of the time. And <laughs> yeah. as as the older sister who is much older than her younger brother, like, look, I've been exposed to some bad stuff. I think we've talked to this about this on this program before, how I feel like I'm entitled to restitution for Caillou. Like, I (laughs) I should get a check from PBS. I was so relieved when I found out that that character doesn't have cancer because I was worried that he was bald because he was like 
sick and then mm. it's like no he he's not sick he's just like this and i was like oh thank god i can okay. go back to hidden that's a really kid yeah yeah well i'm being exposed to children's programming myself Sorry. more and more some these of it's days, really so. some of it's really good and then you get to revisit a lot of your favorites i'm i'm right. given to understand that that's one of the great perks of being a parent is having cause to yeah. revisit your own childhood favorites so it's not all grim but mm-hmm. some of it is the equivalent of blooper mm-hmm Okay, you can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. The great Riley Breckenridge of Productive Outs and Thrice fame, I assume, unless it's an entirely different Riley Breckenridge. Brandon Woosley, MCS, Maxwell Elkus, and Kevin King. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for Patreon supporters only. If you haven't used Discord, it's like a private forum where you can chat with other listeners about baseball and everything else under the sun. It's a great active group, warm and welcoming. You also get access to monthly bonus episodes, one of which we will be recording soon. Plus, we offer playoff live streams and goodies and perks, autographed books, appearances on the podcast, discounts on merch, playoff live streams, and more check it out patreon.com slash effectively wild public funding of effectively wild is something we support if you're a patreon supporter you can contact us through the patreon site if not you can email us send your questions comments and suggestions to podcast at fangrass.com you can also join our facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild you can rate review and subscribe to effectively wild on itunes and spotify and other podcast platforms you can follow effectively wild on twitter at ewpod and you can find the effectively wild subreddit at r slash effectively wild thanks to dylan higgins for his editing and production assistance we will be back with one more episode before the end of the week talk to you soon 